Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Joseph F. O'Callaghan about his study of the Castilian King Alfonso X and the legal code he created, entitled Alfonso X, the Justinian of His Age, Law and Justice in 13th Century Castile. Joe, welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, Mark. I'm so glad to talk to you today. Um, It's a nice day here. It's and we're glad to have you on our channel today. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Okay, I'm a professor emeritus of medieval history at Fordham University now for probably more than 25 years. But during my academic career, I became particularly interested in the history of medieval Spain and eventually wrote a book about that. And in the course of writing that, I became interested in uh, the and Alfonso X, uh, who is known as El Sabio, the learned or the wise king. He was king of Castile in the second half of the 13th century, and uh, he's a major figure in in uh, Spanish literature, among other things, because he a group of of uh, men who work for him, writing books of history and literature and poetry and law and also doing scientific investigation. So he's he's a major figure there in the history of, 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 of uh, the intellectual history of of, of, uh, uh, of Spain. So that's how I got into it. And that led me to, I wrote a biography of him, uh, his reign actually some years ago. And then also I followed that up by, with a study of, of his uh, work on the Cantigas de Santa Maria. The Cantigas de Santa Maria is a collection of about 400 uh, poems in Galician, uh, which is the language spoken in in the northwest of Spain and in Portugal. Uh, But these are poems in uh, recounting Virgin Mary. And my interest in them was uh, to what extent did they actually reflect the king's personal life. So I I worked on that, and uh, then eventually uh, this led me to um, uh, the King's Legal Codes. I Some years ago, uh, my friend, Father Robert Burns, edited a, an English translation of the Siete Partidas, Alfonso's Law Code, and Father Burns asked me to write an introductory uh, section for that, and so that uh, interested me in the in the whole topic, and um, so that's basically how I got into this particular book, uh, which is a study of law and justice as it's reflected in the king's uh, in the Siete Partidas and other works that he that he uh, produced. And incidentally, when I say he produced, what I mean to say is that he had a band of jurists most of whom were anonymous, who did the, the body work for all of that. And um, some years ago, 
Evelyn Proctor, who was an English, a distinguished English historian, commented that Alfonso's role in all of this was to be a kind of a general editor supervising the work that was being done. So that's essentially how I got into this. Hmm. So, Mark, go ahead. Oh, thanks. Uh, One of the things I thought was fascinating was the point that you make early in the book in which you distinguish exactly what Alfonso's achievement is, because we... In studying medieval history, there are plenty of kings who are making laws. And yet, as you explain, there's a a difference between kings who are issuing laws and kings who are crafting entire legal codes. I was wondering if you could perhaps uh, elaborate a bit upon what distinguishes the crafting of a legal code versus just issuing laws, and how many legal codes preceded Alfonso's issuance of his. Okay, um, and and in the, the title of my book, is Alfonso X, the Justinian of his age, and the Justinian in question is the Roman Emperor Justinian, who lived in the 6th century, and put um, uh, together um, a, a major code of law and several uh, auxiliary books, uh, for example, the Institutes and the Digest and so on. And th- that was essentially a major... Uh, summation of Roman law as it existed at his time, and it's divided into books, and each book is divided into titles, and then each title is divided into individual laws of life and how the law applies to that. The uh, That was drawn up, and at that particular time, uh, the Roman Empire had lost control over most of Western Europe. And so, for example, Spain, which had once been part of a province of the Roman Empire, was in the control of the Visigoths, uh, who were one of the Germanic tribes that swept across Europe at that time. You may hang. Under, under the influence of uh, many of the uh, people, the Romans in Spain produced a law code. It's called the Liber Judiciorum or Book of Judges, or we simply call it today the Visigothic Code. But it's, a, it's an attempt to summarize the whole body of law, and it, it, it reflects the uh, outline of Justinian's titles and laws. And uh, so that became the basic law used in the Visigothic Kingdom. However, the Visigothic Kingdom was overthrown by the Muslims, Early in the the uh, the eighth century, and uh, destroyed, effectively destroyed. However, the Visigothic Code still survived, and it was used as a law by Christians who survived in in, uh, in uh, Muslim Spain, and it was also carried northward into the the the, the eventual kingdom of Leon, which. Uh, came into being in the northwestern part of, of, of the Iberian Peninsula. So it was there and used there for some centuries. In the meantime, uh, in, in, in uh, regions to the uh, east of, of Leon, uh, customary law came to be prevalent, and customary law was basically oral, and a lot of it was uh, influenced by Germanic tradition. Eventually, some of those uh, customs began to be written down and came to be called fueros, 
That's F-U-E-R-O-S. It's a word derived from the Latin word forum, meaning a law. And so uh, in the 11th and 12th centuries, as the Christians began to move southward from Castile and Leon and began to occupy territory that had once been Muslim, uh, these collections of these fueros were written down and they were given to different towns as their basic law. So you have a, a collection of municipal fueros parading in in, in Old Castile and also in the area known as Extremadura. And that was more or less the situation uh, in the 13th century when uh, Alfonso came to power. Alfonso's father, Fernando III, had actually extended the frontiers of the Kingdom of Castile uh, to include much of what is now he captured uh, the city of Cordoba and also the city of Seville in 1248. And uh, so Alfonso's job when he became king was to, um, first of all, consolidate his father's conquest. That meant bringing in Christian settlers into Cordoba and Seville and guaranteeing the security of the frontiers. But also, he became um, interested and concerned about the expansion of Spanish rule into Morocco. And that was a long-standing tradition uh, that, that had been uh, held over centuries. People believed that Morocco had a kingdom, and so the notion was that somehow or other that should be recovered and, and reintegrated into the kingdom of Castile and Leon. But aside from that, Alfonso was concerned to secure Morocco, uh, the, some, a basis in Morocco, because he did not, got, did not want Moroccans to be invading Spain. So his preoccupation at the beginning of his reign is securing the conquest of his father, uh, planning a crusade in Africa, and uh, 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 also, in addition to everything else, getting himself elected as Holy Roman Emperor. So he had those three major uh, activities on his agenda in the early part of his reign. And it was during that time that work was also begun on his law codes. The necessity to bring about some kind of unity or uniformity uh, in the legal system and had initiated the work, but the work was basically carried out and completed by Alfonso X. And as I say, he had employed a body of jurists, people trained in the law to, to do it. So what happened was that his uh, jurists produced three laws. One of them, and I'll give you the modern names, one is the Fuero Real, or royal law, the especulo is the second one, and that's the mirror of law, and the third one is the siete partidas, which is actually, that's the seven parts, and that's actually a revision of the especulo. So the first two were produced at about the same time, the especulo and the fuero real. The fuero real tended to be a municipal law 
a law given to the towns of Castile and um, Extremadura and to replace or they had. And the Especlo was a law code that the king kept in the royal court and it was to be, a, as he said, a mirror of laws. In other words, uh, the laws of the Fuero Real were reflected in the, they were a reflection of the Especlo and were, could be corrected and amended in accordance with the Especlo. However, while we have many copies of the Fuero Real, we, uh, the, the Especlo survives today only, as far as we know, in one manuscript, and it's incomplete. It's, uh, a number of, it's a number of five, uh, five books in the Especlo. There are references to others, but we do not have them. Now, Alfonso, I think, I believe, promulgated the Especlo and the Fuero Real of the land. The Fuero Real as a municipal law and the Especlo as a law book that would regulate all other law books, and that was kept in the royal court. And what I'm arguing then is the Especlo was a complete work, even though we don't have the whole work today. But the king also claimed the right not only to make law, but also to amend it. So, for example, if the if the if he felt that the Especlo was needed to be amended or improved, he could do that, and that's what happened. In 1256, for example, he was recognized as the Holy Roman Emperor, and he was formally elected as such in 1257. And at that point, he set his jurists to work producing the siete, the work that came to be called the Siete Partidas. And the point of that was to emphasize his role as emperor. So that work was begun, according to the text itself, it was begun in 1256, and it was completed in 1265. So the Siete Partidas, in that sense, is a revision of the Especlo. And as I said, because the Especlo had been promulgated, the king did not see the necessity to have the Siete Partidas promulgated as well. It was simply a revision, an extension, a completion of the Especlo. In 1348, Alfonso XI uh, declared that the, the, the Siete Partidas had not been promulgated, and so he, at that point, he gave it the force of law, and it has then since been, been accepted as such. But anyway, so the Siete Partidas then is the major law code that we're talking about. And by the reason why I called this book Alfonso X, the Justinian of his age, is because if you look over the history of medieval law, uh, it, it, uh, we have Justinian's Code, which is a collection, a systematic treatment of law over in, in all of its aspects. And then you have Alfonso Siete, which is also a comprehensive, systematic treatment of every aspect of the law. And I'll talk about the, the contents of that in, in a bit. But in the meantime, we, you have individual kings in, in different parts of Europe enacting specific laws, 
on different topics, but not really producing a code uh, in the sense of just that's the 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 reason for emphasizing that Alfonso is the Justinian of the 13th century because his his law code is a comprehensive systematic treatment of every aspect of human life as it as reflected in the law. Um, so um, I should talk then, I guess, about the content of the Siete Partidos. Oh, please, please do. Uh, it's uh, first of all, he the king talks about it as the the libro, and uh, but it becomes to be called eventually toward the end of his life. He he leaves it actually in his will. He mentions that he's leaving the septenario to uh, to his successors, and that term septenario, septenario, or septenario. Um, means a book divided into seven parts. And that's how this came to be called the Siete Partidas. And um, it's, as I say, it's divided into seven parts. Each of the partidas is divided into, into titles, and each title is divided into laws, specific laws. So the first of those books, uh, or partidas, deals with the um, the notion of law itself. And, of course, first of all, it emphasizes the king, king and emperor has the right to make law. So then it describes what law is and uh, what's the difference between law and custom and so on, the differences between written and unwritten law. And then most of the first partita is actually devoted to... Uh, it, it 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 kind of borrows from the uh, or uses the the uh, books of canon law that were then current in the 13th century, the de- the decretum of uh, Gratian, the de- 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 the work of um, Pope Gregory the Ninth, the decretals, and so on. So it summarizes most of that, and that seems kind of incongruous in a book of laws here in for a kingdom, but. I think Alfonso had a uh, concept of law that was unified, and saw this as part of of the, the of the law, and also saw it as part of his responsibility as a Christian king to uphold and defend the Christian Church. So I think that's the reason for for um, including the the uh, uh, canon law in the in the first of the Partidas. The second partita is probably the most interesting. It um, focuses on the the king himself. <coughs> it focuses on the king himself and uh, the members of his family, but it um, it also draws on philosophy. And theology, it, it talks, it, it borrows, for example, Aristotle, and it borrows from um, um, the the Bible, a lot of uh, quotations from the Bible, and uh, uh, a lot of other writers. It also uses the earlier writings of the um, of the Visigothic Code and uh, people like Saint Isidore of Seville and so on. But anyway, in that he's talking about. The role of the king, how the king comes to be, uh, how the king is made. Uh, incidentally, the uh, the span of the kings of Castile 
were not crowned and anointed um, generally as were the kings in France and England. Um, The king is essentially acclaimed by the assembly of bishops and nobles and townspeople, and that's how he became a king. So he talks about the role of the king and emphasizes his relationship with God. He is God's vicar on earth. He rules by the grace of God, and his title is Alfonso, King by the Grace of God. And the point of that is that he emphasizes that he owes his position to God's favor, and he is responsible to God for how he conducts his business. So that uh, idea kind of pervades most of what he has to say about the fact that the king is much like the emperor he has in his own kingdom. He has the same power that an emperor has in his kingdom, and that uh, um, uh, he is responsible uh, for the welfare and the common good of his people. The common good is a consistent theme that runs through his, his work. That's his main job, is to foster the common good and to see to it that justice is done to every person. Uh, that again, that phrase the being rendering to everyone is due runs through the 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 uh, all uh, all of the partidas. It's it's essentially what the king is concerned with. The um, he in that um, initial partida he also talks about the it's the second partida. I mean to say, he talks about not only the king and what sort of person how the king should conduct himself. Um, king of he should be um, a person who is learned, illiterate, a person who is concerned about learning new things all the time. Someone who is attentive to the saberas. The saberas, by that he means uh, the sciences, the all of the subjects of study that are useful for being a rule. Constantly be on the alert to learn new things. So he talks about that and how the king should conduct himself, and then he talks about the king's relationship with his family. And that, in, in many respects, the importance of that is that he wants to transmit his power to his children, his heirs. So in order to do that, he has to choose a wife who has certain qualities. She should be noble and beautiful and courteous and loving and all those kinds of things. So he talks about all of that. And then he talks about how uh, should be educated, how they, they who will uh, speak about uh, or teach them the things that they need to know to be good people in this world. And, of course, particularly he's concerned about his sons and, most importantly, his oldest son, who will be the heir to the throne. So uh, there's a great deal of emphasis on, on that sort of thing. In addition to that, he talks to, about his relationships with his brothers, and he had several brothers, but uh, uh, they didn't get along too well. Uh, there was a lot of sibling rivalry, and uh, he had uh, his brother Enrique rebelled against him, and eventually, and uh, his brother Federico eventually followed uh, Enrique to Spain, and later came back and, and was involved in Spain. And then the younger brother Manuel, both of those play a role in the king's later. Uh, activity. But um, 
so he's talking about how you how you bring together that family and how that family then creates a dynasty perpetuate uh, its power and authority. Now, in addition to that, he talks about the administrative apparatus. The king has to rule with the guidance and the assistance of his court. And the court includes mostly nobles and uh, bishops and also uh, people that you would call letrados, learned men, men who are of, of a middle, middling background, uh, but who are scholars, people who are literate, and who know uh, something about law and about different aspects of life. So those are the people that he brings into his court. And some of them have specific jobs, important jobs. There's a mayordomo, for example, who is normally responsible for all of the financial aspects of the, the, uh, the administration. The alferes, who is a military leader, um, primarily, these are positions that are given usually to uh, members of uh, the office of chancellor, I should say, the, the office of the chancery. Uh, technically, uh, the Archbishop of Toledo, for example, holds a, the title of Archbishop, about, I'm sorry, the title of chancellor. But in practical terms, the chancery is run by notaries. There's a notary for Castile and there's a notary for Leon. And they supervise a body of scribes whose job it is to write up all the um, the documents that the king uh, produces. These include uh, grants uh, to churches, to monasteries, to towns, all sorts of stuff like that. All the public documents uh, are recorded by this, written by the scribes. They're supervised by the notaries, make sure, make sure that they're authentic, and they are also registered in, in books so that the king knows what he has actually agreed to. And then original copies of those texts are given out to uh, the town or the bishops or the monasteries or whoever the recipients are. So that's one of the, that's a, one of the major, major offices of public uh, affairs. And incidentally, there are in the in the partidas there are a whole lot of um, of formulae that you can use uh, for different kinds of purposes, um, uh, legal documents. In other words, the the, the formulas are right there of partidas and use them, for example, or sales or things of that sort. Now, in addition to all of that, the king talks to about treason, and treason is a, is a topic that comes up again and again and again. He's very much concerned about people betraying him in different ways, and of course the punishment for treason is very serious. Depending on the crime, I mean, the, the extent of the crime, it can be result in the confiscation of one's property, or being sent into exile, or being executed. And the prime example of that is his brother, Federique, Federique had gone off to Sicily and then eventually came back to Spain. But in 1277, the king executed him without a trial. And the question is, why did he do that? And it would seem that uh, uh, at that point, Federique was probably angling to 
uh, take control of the government in some way or other because Alfonso himself was becoming ill and rather erratic at that time. So anyway, so he was he was executed. Now the uh, and, and the opposite part of treason, uh, which is discussed as well in the Partidas, is the notion of tyranny. And here you have um, an example of that. People, a tyrant, because he levies heavy taxes to finance his, his activities, and also because they object to the, the, these newfangled laws that he's producing, and they object to things like the execution of his brother, Fadrique, and some other instances of that sort of behavior. So that's, that's uh, tyrannical behavior, and that ultimately brings about the king's downfall. In 1282, and now let me explain, first of all, he, be, before that, he also has to deal with the problem of succession to the throne. He had a son, uh, Fernando de la Cerda, uh, who was a bright young man, but uh, died suddenly in 1275 uh, on his way to the frontier to overthrow or to, um, to halt an invasion from Morocco. But he died in the process of that journey southward. And so uh, the king's problem then was, who do we designate as successor? Fra uh, Fernando de la Ferra had a, a young son, a child, de la Ferra, and uh, he could have been named as the heir to the throne. And in fact, the Siete Partidas accepted that as, as the way it should be done. But a five-year-old with an ailing king and with an invading um, army from Morocco uh, was not the best possible choice. So in the king named his second son, Sancho, as king, as the heir to the throne. And Sancho had the backing of the king's youngest brother, Manuel. And that worked out okay for a couple of years. But then in 1282, Sancho and, um, um, uh, um, decided to rebel against his father, and he did so because the father decided to make, uh, to divide the kingdom, actually, to make provision for giving parts of the kingdom to Alfonso de la Cerda and, and so on. So Alfa uh, Sancho rebelled against him, and in 1282, with the support of, of Infante Manuel and the support of the queen, Violante, uh, they, the estates of the realm dispossessed Alfonso X of royal authority. They, they let him have the title of king, but they took away all of the basic functions of kingship and transferred them to Sancho. And what that did effectively was to divide the kingdom and put it into civil war for about two years until the king died in 1284. So it's interesting that while he had worked so very hard to produce this law code that was going to bring everybody together in harmony, uh, his own being, his, 
his violation of certain aspects of that law code eventually led to his own downfall. So, if, if I may interject, um, I, I had to say that you know, as I was reading your book, that, that was one of the things I thought I thought was really fascinating about what you did, which is that you know I've there there you know, you could have simply have talked about the laws that Alfonso wrote, but what you do in the book, which is I thought was really fascinating, was you integrate it into those experiences of his reign, both showing the degree to which his conception, you know, the provisions reflected Afonso's experiences and also how they came into play as his reign went on. So you're talking about basically the legal code as a living body that's the product of his, you know, conception or, or, or the experiences of his reign and not just say a distillation of, of, of ideas or, or something that was entirely abstract, which had no real grounding in the times in which they were written. Uh, well, a, a, a law book uh, is a book of regulations, and as everybody knows, uh, you can have all the regulations you want, but then do you actually enforce them? And one of the things that I was concerned about in, in doing this was not only to talk about what was actually in this law book, but also to see to what extent could I show from other kinds of and that uh, was I was able to do that in some instances and in other instances of in, in, instances. No. But anyway, um, what you have here, I, I, I talked about the the, the, the the notion of kingship and all of that, that sort of thing. But then you have the practical uh, issues. For example, there's the third party that talks about how. A legal process, how uh, you bring a suit in court. Um, and, and the important part, point there is that in the early Middle Ages, in the Germanic society, if you wanted to sue somebody, you, it was pretty much on your own to do that. Uh, you didn't have too much support other than from your immediate family. But with Alfonso, he emphasizes that the judges are, he will appoint the judges, and the reason for that is he wants the judges to apply the law in the siete partidas. Um, he doesn't want them doing anything off the top of their heads or at, at whim or whatever. So the judges are, uh, who uh, uh, listen to, to legal cases in towns and so on are appointed by the king. The scribes that record the work of, of the courts are also appointed by the king. And anyway, then he describes the, the whole process, and basically it's a written process. It's, it's, it's reflective, really, of the process used in Roman and canon law. So it's written a written process, but it involves, for example, the presentation by the plaintiff of a written uh, 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 demand and then a response by the, the the defendant, and then the the business is dealt with in a court, and the judge eventually has to listen to um, uh, witnesses if there are any, and sometimes that may also mean using an inquest. So an inquest is a major tool of the king uh, for ferreting out truth about all kinds of issues. And what an inquest is, is a, you're bringing together a, a fairly large group of people from uh, a different, lo from a particular locality, and then asking them 
to uh, state what they know about a particular issue. And on the basis of that, then the, the judge can make a decision. So inquests are a very important tool for the king. And it's also one of the things that people complain about. In 1281, for example, the Cortes of, of, of Seville complains about false inquests. In other words, they're objecting to the, to the probing nature of these inquiries that the king is carrying out. Uh, and then besides inquests, you have uh, the use of documents. You produce a document that um, uh, justifies whatever claim you may have. The problem with that is how do we know that the document you produce is authentic? And if it's the original document, it ought to have the king's seal on it. But it may not have that. It may be a copy. And then you can also check it in the registers that the king has kept of charters that he's issued. So that may work out okay. But anyway, on the basis of all that, then the court makes a decision. And if you, if you are, uh, are one of the, the litigants and you don't like it, you can appeal. And the appeal goes to the, king, uh, to the king's court, to the king himself. And, of course, he's got professional judges in his court who hear appeals of that, of that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of that. Incidentally, there's a, a long uh, litigation involving the monastery of Onya, which is up in Old Castile, and they produce these inquests, and uh, they have something like, I think, 100 uh, people from the locality called in to give testimony about uh, the issues in, in dispute. So... There's that you have that whole process that how do you how do you actually um, bring your case to court and how is it solved? So the king uh, works out all the details of that in the in the law code, and then the other parts of the code deal with the the law of persons and the law of property, and that's reflective of a. Roman comment that the law uh, concerns persons, property, and actions, and the actions would be the court's uh, court process. But anyway, so you have under the law of persons, there's a whole treatment of the issue of uh, of marriage and family, uh, children, legitimate children, illegitimate children, guardianship. Uh, of children, all of those kinds of things. There's also something that's rather peculiar that is discussed there as, as well, and it's called baragalia. And uh, what that is, is it's essentially a form of concubinage. Um, in other words, uh, it's not a marriage in the traditional sense. And incidentally, on the marriage aspects of it, mostly by this time, the the, uh, the the marriage is solemnized in the church, so the church has kind of taken over the whole process of of how you get married. But baragonia is something apart from that, and it's basically a long-term relationship that a man has with a woman, and it, uh, it's, a, it's very much akin to to marriage. And in fact, the king himself has uh, had affairs with several women, but one in particular. Uh, it seems to be a long-lasting marriage, and I think is kind of an example of this uh, sort of baragonia. So that's discussed in the code as well. 
and also the the code reflects the Roman idea of pater familias. In other words, the father is the head of the family, and for all practical purposes, his word is law. So he not only controls his wife and his uh, children, but he controls everybody in his household, and nothing is done without his consent and his approval. And women in in general, general are... Um, in a state of protection, they are protected by their parents, their father, and then when they get married, they become come under the protection of their of their um, their husbands. And uh, in some respects, they really get their create a sense of freedom when they become widows. But anyway, so that whole business of marriage and family is a major part of the thing the law code, and that leads to to the discussion about the inheritance. The family, the reason for having the family coming together is to uh, preserve and maintain its property, its estate, and then you have to have make sure that that gets into the proper hands, and that's done by drawing up wills and designating heirs and so on. And again, that reflects pretty much the Roman... Uh, uh, guidelines on that particular issue. So that's part of it. And then there's a whole section that deals with uh, lords and vassals. This is lords and vassals is a major aspect of medieval society anyway. And so there's a long part of the work that deals with that. There uh, also is much talk about the um, the juridical capacity of people in other words, uh, what that means is, do you have any kind of standing before the law? If you were a child, for example, you don't really have juridical capacity. Your your parents or your guardian acts in your name, or woman, uh, her husband acts in, in her name or her father. So juridical capacity is limited. And incidentally, Jews and Muslims don't have equal standing with with Christians because this is a essentially a Christian society, so that they're treated as a separate group. But anyway, uh, also in that whole aspect of of the the law of persons, there's much attention given to slavery, and slavery means or as a result really of the the warfare going on during along the frontier um, between Christians and Muslims and that's been going on for centuries so if you if you lived on the frontier um, you ran the risk of being captured uh, either by the Christians or by the Muslims so um, a lot of Christian slaves ended up in, in uh, the kingdom of Granada or else they ended up in Morocco uh, and at the same time a lot of Muslims were captured and they were enslaved and, and uh, handed over to nobles and monasteries and convents and places like that. So there's much discussion in there about the rights of slaves and the treatment of slaves, uh, and then also about a whole process of manumission and how you can free the slaves. And then what's the status of a freedman? A freedman, for example, uh, is supposed to be on... Uh, on good terms with his former master. Um, I'm sure that didn't always work out, but anyways, 
uh, it's one of the aspects of this. So that whole area of, of the of the law of persons is dealt with. And then there's much talk about the, the matter of property, ownership of property, uh, possession of property, uh, how that works out, and then the uh, different kinds of, of contracts that uh, are, are entered into by people. For example, leases of property, um, the sales of property, how is all that handled and regulated? And there are many, many examples of that kind of thing. Exchanges of property uh, and so on. So that's all dealt with as well. And uh, what else? Um, oh, well, then the king, too, is concerned about commercial activity. He welcomes trade with other uh, uh, people, people from other, other areas, other kingdoms, other regions, because he recognizes that that's going to be a benefit uh, to his own kingdom. But he also regulates a lot of that. So, for example, there are laws that regulate weights and measures. There's an attempt on his part to establish uh, coinage that will be acceptable and, and useful. And he regulates money lending. Money lending um, was basically something that Christians were not supposed to. Christians were allowed to lend money, obviously, but they were not supposed to be taking interest or usury. That was something that Christians were not supposed to do. But what happens then is you have Jewish uh, money lenders who were allowed to take interest, so the king regulates that, but also... Uh, you find that the Christians oftentimes will uh, arrange for loans, and then we'll have clauses in the loans, for example, that say, well, if, if the money is not paid on a particular date, then there's a penalty, and the penalty basically is, is interest, and both parties pretty much knew all about, all about that. And the king also regulated the formation of guilds, he uh, wanted to. He was willing to have guilds, but they had to be under his control. And he wanted also to. Uh, he, he regulated mercantile companies. So his concern here is to emphasize royal authority in all of these areas, uh, uh, and and uh, not to allow everyone to pursue his own particular interest, but rather to try to reach. Uh, the interests of the, of the of the community as a whole, and the last part of that my book is on on the on the well on well the last part the two parts actually the on crime and punishment. <laughs> Obviously, a law code has to deal with crime, and there are numerous examples of that uh, that the king cites uh, the whole raft of crimes uh, from treason, murder. Uh, all the sexual crimes, adultery, fornication, homosexuality is condemned vigorously, and um, uh, it's even stated that uh, the tolerance of some homosexuality is going to lead to bad things for the kingdom. So it's a very negative view of that entirely. And then all the different kinds of frauds and scams that people come up with. One interesting thing there is they talk about the the um, uh, scam involving 
you you um, want to borrow some money from somebody and you present the, as collateral a, a chest that's supposedly filled with with uh, uh, valuable uh, goods, and it turns out that the chest is actually filled with sand. Well, that's essentially the scam that the Sid uh, carried out against the Jews in Burgos. He needed money, and he did exactly that. And that whole notion is is uh, mentioned in the in the Partidas. So a lot of stuff on on uh, criminal behavior, and it obviously. Uh, that society was uh, reflective of, well, uh, the kind of crimes that still happen every other day in every part of the world. <laughs> so look, that's more or less, I think, an overview. I, I ended my book with a a, uh, a comment on how the Siete Partidas, the impact of the Siete Partidas on our own world. And what I would say here is that it's um, a law book that was obviously written for the benefit of the people in the kingdom of Castile Leon, but during uh, the king's own lifetime, or shortly after his lifetime, I should say, there were attempts made to translate it into Portuguese and also into Catalan, and um, there, it, it had some impact on the development of law in those two areas, but also it becomes the fundamental law then in all those parts of the world that were colonized by the Spanish people, so uh, all of Latin America and, and so on. And the, a, a number of scholars have studied the, uh, the, the impact of, of the Siete Partidas in their country. So, for example, there, there are instances, for example, when after, after uh, the uh, Latin countries began to declare their independence of Spain in the 19th century, they had to decide what kind of law they were going to follow, and what they did in many cases was to draw up lists of bodies of law and what precedents they would have. So the Siete Partidas is listed as a fundamental uh, body of law that's to be followed in places like Mexico, for example, or uh, Peru, and, and so on. So but a lot of that. And But also, it's the Partidas is also used in parts of the United States that were brought under Spanish rule. And, and specifically, um, you, as examples of that, you have Louisiana, Texas, and California. The, in fact, in the early part of the 19th century, Louisiana, the people in Louisiana decided that a translation of the Siete Partidas into English would be useful because so much of the law of Louisiana was based on the Partidas. So that was produced. It wasn't a complete translation, but it, it, because it left out, for example, the book of Can or the canon law parts, but anyway, and then, of course, in Texas and in California, the partidas were cited in cases involving the possession of land, um, the uh, mines, and things of that sort. And there's even a reference in one case. Father Burns, by the way, did a, a, a study of some of this uh, work, but there's one case uh, in, in, involving the Siete Partidas when the Pope 
when it's uh, cited by the Supreme Court Justice uh, Ren Justice Rehnquist. He mentions in, in a, an opinion he wrote on this uh, about the Siete Partidas. So it's a body of law that's produced in the 13th century. It's a code of law. It's really the only true code of law written in the medieval or the medieval period, aside from Justinian's code. So it's really reflective of that, and it has this tremendous worldwide impact because it's applied uh, in uh, all of those areas that Spain eventually dominated. So it's an extraordinary body of work. And as I say, the irony of all of this is that the king who produced it, Alfonso X, eventually fell afoul of the law because he violated it himself. He <laughs> uh, did not give uh, due process to his brother, whom he executed without a trial, and that was held against him, and so on. So, anyway... Uh, what else can I say, Mark? Well, I, I, it, you've you, you've said it all. It's it, you've I mean, it's it, you've demonstrated how you know comprehensive the code is and how much uh, it, it covered, and, and also its considerable legacy. Uh, my only question remaining is, uh, what are you working on now? <laughs> I'm I'm working on um, odds and ends of things. Uh, one of the one of the um, uh, books of law that that has come down to us is called the Leyes del Estilo, the laws, literally the laws of style. What this is is uh, it's an anonymous body of work, and it probably dates from the end of Alfonso's reign and the early part of the 14th century, and it's um, it's concerned with the. Uh, literally how the royal court handled different kinds of, of legal situations. So uh, I, I'm trying to make sense out of that. It deals with, for example, debts and um, uh, contracts of different sorts, how people respond to summons to the court, um, how you deal with crimes and things of that, that kind of stuff. Also has a lot on on, on uh, the treatment of Jews. And I forgot to mention, by the way, that throughout Alfonso's codes, he's talking about Jews and Muslims. And essentially, they are not, they are not subject to this code uh, because they are recognized as having their own uh, laws and being, uh, having the right to be judged according to their own law and to follow their uh, also allowed to be um, uh, to worship freely, but their contact with Christians is limited in many ways, and particularly when you come into the issue of a conflict between a Christian, for example, and a Jew, or a Christian and a Muslim, then the, the balance of power there is on the side of the Christian. But there are oaths, for example, that Jews and Muslims have to swear when they are brought into court, and those uh, oaths are specifically tailored to their religious beliefs. So if you're a Jew, this is a kind of oath you have to swear, and it refer, re, re, refers to the prophets of the Old Testament. And if you're a Muslim, uh, it, it, that's another kind of code that, or oath that you have to swear to as well. 
So anyway, so anyway, what I'm doing is just trying to uh, see what I can make sense of this this uh, collection of laws uh, reflecting the the operation of the royal court uh, at the end of Alfonso's reign and the beginning of 14th century. And what I'll do with that, I have no idea. <laughs> well, it, it does sound like a, a very fascinating project, and I and I do wish you the best of luck with it. Joe, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. All right. Thank you very much, Mark. Appreciate this. 